very open about my views you know, on gay marriage, on abortion, on transgenderism. Sraba Mari certainly is as well. And our collaborators are uh, happy to work with us despite those views. And I think that sets them apart from a lot of people who are on the, on the left broadly understood, who are totally unwilling to be around people who have such horrible backward regressive views. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo and Nate. Today, Matthew Schmitz, one of the founders and editors of the new magazine Compact, is joining us to talk about the vision for the magazine, which is a stated editorial mission statement pushing against the libertine left and the libertarian right. In its short life, the magazine has already been the subject of numerous reports by right of center and mainstream outlets alike. Thanks for joining us today, Matthew, uh, to tell us more about what to expect from Compact. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. And I'd also like to invite ISI alumni, faculty, and supporters to attend our second inaugural homecoming weekend featuring Victor Davis Hansen, Ross Douthat, Patrick Deneen, among others, which will take place at ISI's beautiful campus in Wilmington, Delaware on May 13th through the 14th. So if you're interested, please go to our website to register. So Matthew, thanks for joining. And um, obviously the subject of this this discussion is going to be this new magazine that you founded. So I guess to start us off, could you tell us more about what Compact is? And for listeners who may not yet be familiar, could you tell us about what motivated you and your co-founders? And could you tell us who your co-founders are too? which is on your website, of course, but for our listeners' purposes, what motivated you all to uh, launch the magazine when you did? Compact is a membership-supported web publication that I founded with Sharab Amari and Edwin Aponte. Now, Sharab was an editor at the Wall Street Journal opinion page at uh, Commentary Magazine, and most recently at the New York Post. He was, for many years, uh, I would say the golden boy of the uh, neoconservative movement or the interventionist tendency on the right. My other co-founder, Edwin Aponte, is previously uh, was previously the editor of The Bellows, which is sometimes described as a post-leftist publication, but describes itself as a labor populist organ. Basically, The Bellows was created by Edwin in response to the fact that a lot of people had become disillusioned with the Bernie left. DSA, millennial socialism, the kind of thing represented by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That disillusionment had a couple of sources. One was simply the failure of Bernie's campaign, but that political failure seemed to be part of a broader failure. A lot of people began to suggest that the left was more, you know, the the Bernie left even was more interested in, you know, certain weird cultural obsessions than it was with, you know, actually promoting uh, policies that help working men. I think that, you know, the DSA did and does have uh, a certain class politics, but really its politics are about helping the particular class that its members tend to belong to, which is the kind of more precarious uh, segment of the professional managerial class, the people who have these uh, kind of email jobs that maybe don't occupy the higher rungs in their organizations. So that's where Edwin comes out of. And, you know, he had that disillusionment with uh, the Bernie left. Sarab, I think, had a great deal of disillusionment with the intervention of sentencing foreign policy, which he had been such an active and eloquent spokesman for, especially when it came to 
the cult with with the um, kind of youth uprisings in the Arab world. He edited a book about this democratic tendency in the Arab world. But the so-called Arab Spring you know, resulted in a an Islamist uh, winter, you could say, as what were perceived to be secular democratic youth movements actually resulted in the empowerment of Islamist parties like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which uh, it was even worse for the Christians there um, than what had gone before, which wasn't that pretty either. So that's where they come out of. You know, for the last uh, 11 years, uh, I've been an editor at First Things magazine, uh, working for Rusty Reno. It's uh, you know brilliant and a courageous editor. And I had become convinced that I wanted to join with people from who weren't just social conservatives, but had uh, shared a sense that there was something deeply wrong in our politics and that we needed kind of more material class-based analysis of that to understand what the actual array of forces was. And so from this unlikely pairing of these three different people, Compact emerged. So Matthew, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about a material class-based politics, but also obviously you're critical of DSA, for example. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from from reading Compact and from being familiar with you and Sorov's work where you guys dis- distinguish yourselves from the sort of traditional fusionist orthodoxy on the right. And I think that'll probably be familiar to a lot of our listeners. But I'm curious to hear you dig into a little bit more about why you and the other contributors to the magazine think that the DSA's brand of politics, at least in its contemporary form, is not really an authentic or a full class politics, where they go wrong and where you think uh, some something like Compact can correct those defects. I, I think it is, it is a class politics, but it is a concealed class politics based on certain delusions. DSA people imagine that they're speaking up for American workers. They're really just speaking up for themselves and their proposals help will help members of their class, but really no one else. I can never have any real truck with the DSA people because I think that uh, you know, family, uh, community, country are not necessarily evil things. That's, that's the real, real dividing line for me. And I think probably for most, I think that's probably true for a lot of people the DSA would like to speak for. They're never going to go in for their kind of weird, um, you know, politics of, you know, abolish the family, automate uh, reproduction with mass machine surrogacy to liberate women. I mean, the stuff you find in a kind of verso DSA universe is sort of, it's like a, it's sort of like a loopy, like uh, sci-fi socialism that really seeks to abolish everything that's natural. Some people might think that, you know, it's kind of like strange bedfellows, um, perhaps if they're not like acquainted with what's happening in kind of, I guess I'll call it post-liberal sphere for just the purposes of um, what I'm about to say, but they might think that it's strange bedfellows for the, for the labor populist left to kind of join with the populist right. Um, and so how, how do you think Compact will be able to do that without yielding some of the non-negotiables of social conservatism? Um, is that, I mean, is that possible? Is that something that, you know, editorially you're willing to um, concede uh, for the sake of, you know, this, uh, the, this larger um, kind of coalition building? What's, where do you see there being overlap and where do you say, see there being enough of, um, disagreements that do you think that that would be represented in, in the publication? 
Yeah, well, America is a very big country. Not everyone in it happens to share my views, uh, excellent as I think they are. So, obviously, the you know getting along always will work. Will always be a matter of negotiation and uh, reaching some kind of modus vivendi. You know, compact I think is notable because it has social conservatives uh, leading the organization, but it's not an exclusively socially conservative project. I mean, compact is is not a conservative magazine. It doesn't seek to, you know, kind of defend true true conservative true conservatism. I think that, you know the bulwark when it launched said that it's sought to conserve conservatism. And it was invested in this project of uh, saying, we're the real conservatives, other people aren't. Compact doesn't purport to do that. So I, I don't think you should, one, one should expect it to be conservative as such. It'll have you know a whole variety of elements. Um, but you know I'm very open about my views you know, on gay marriage, on abortion, on transgenderism. Uh, Sraba Mari certainly is as well. And our collaborators are uh, happy to work with us despite those views. And I think that sets them apart from a lot of people who are on the, on the left, broadly understood, who are totally unwilling to be around people who have such horrible, backward, regressive views. It seems like you're saying, you know, the socialist left, as it's currently constituted, isn't offering a full or authentic working class politics uh, largely because of its cultural views, right? And you listed a, a number as well as perhaps, you know, its stance on something like immigration, the DSA's antipathy to even the concept of a nation state, right? We're all familiar with with those uh, issues with the DSA. In terms of their, their economic program and their economic worldview, though, I mean, I think what you were saying about the DSA sort of representing the interests of the class of people who are the activists in the DSA is is certainly visible in something like their you know, interest in student loan debt forgiveness, which is a, a handout uh, often to, to very wealthy people. But what in general do you think, uh, is there substantive divergences between maybe someone like you and Sorab and the DSA on economic matters? And where are those divergences if they do exist? Or do you think they have it more or less right on economics and the real substantive differences between you and them is largely on the cultural questions? You know, if you talk to uh People on the left, they they say things, you know, we just care about, you know, material issues. We're not interested in this culture war stuff. You know, we we really go in for this tough, hard-headed, class-based analysis. <laughs> it's, a, it's all just a crock. Uh, they will only exclude you for deviation on the, on the so-called cultural uh, issues. Now, very often our cultural con- contest, contests are also class contests of various forms. They are about contention between different groups with slightly different economic interests. It's very common. You know, I think you mentioned student loan debt forgiveness. That's an excellent example. Uh, you know, it's not just a policy that doesn't benefit the poorest Americans. Uh, it's not just a handout to the members of the TSA. Also, as you know, generally proposed, it would be a huge handout to the universities, which are not one of the healthiest uh, elements in our society. And you know, the, the notion that the U.S. government should be pumping even more money into these uh, institutions is uh, you know crazy. And it's not. I mean, you know, it's basically the DSA supports socialism for members of its class, but not not really for for others. So it seems like, um, Matt, you know, everything that you're saying there, I think, would be perfectly comfortable in sort of mainstream legacy conservative institutions in terms of the critiques of 
both the DSA's cultural politics, but also of you know aspects of their economic program. But obviously, you started Compact in the interests of challenging consensuses on the right and the left. Um, so, where do you think? You know, and you're collaborating with leftists, so, albeit often I think heterodox leftists. So, where is the crossover with a certain strain of sort of left wing thinking, maybe particularly on economics, that would make Compact distinct from the standard right wing publications that are available right now? Well, you know, just if you look at what we've published so far, we had a piece um, by my co-founder and friend Saraba Mari about labor unions, and he was hailing the organization efforts at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, and he drew on the scholarship of a man named Michel, who had been an official in the Obama administration and is a progressive scholar of labor, and Saurab. Uh, uses Michelle's analysis to understand our current labor struggles. Now, this this analysis is not one that would be relied upon by any uh, conservative think tank scholar or by any right wing journalist. And uh, that's, I mean, that's something that yeah, you would not certainly not be able to get on the page at National Review. Editorially speaking, what would you say um, are some of the subjects or beats or um you know, maybe human interest pieces and commentary or news reports, it can be anything um, that have been neglected by mainstream outlets and maybe more, um, you know, institutionally entrenched right-leaning outlets that they've completely neglected or maybe they've kind of shunned it altogether. Uh, you know, obviously uh, the post-liberals have kind of, you know, there's a post-liberal substack. There's kind of this kind of building off of a populist momentum. I think that has attracted a lot of um, especially in ISI's orbit, a lot of young students. I actually had um, one of my colleagues tell me that he went to a debate at Harvard between Patrick Deneen and a- Michael Anton the other day. And when he was talking to the students, they were all telling him that, um, yeah, like all Harvard, all conservative Harvard students are leaning towards post-liberalism. You can't really find a free market fundamentalist among them. Um, so it's interesting to hear that from a uh, school that has housed, for example, the College Republicans, which has kind of, um, historically speaking, been kind of been big tent. So I'm interested in hearing kind of more about from an editorial perspective, you have someone like Walter Kern, obviously a very famous author, you have Jeff Schallenberger, who I've been following for a while. um, And you have uh, contributing editors like Adrian Brimuel and Slavoj Žižek, both quite well known names. Um, So obviously, they're not all in unison with each other, per se. But um, it seems like they all have these criticisms of um, of liberalism generally. And in your mission statement, you say it's you're perhaps not um, agitating against liberality, but liberalism itself. So can you talk about how you're going to um, kind of manifest that in your editorial vision um, and what kind of pieces will you want written about? What kind what kind are you looking for? Um, and what generally speaking are you are your expectations for, I guess, the the outlook for the editorial mission of, of Compact. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. You know, there are a couple parts to it. You know, you, you mentioned there already, of course, many magazines that exist on both you know the left and the right. You know, on the, on the left you have something like a Jacobin. On the right you have National Review. All you know, all of these magazines do uh, good work. They all have you know their their distinct missions. You know, I think of something like National Review as really being. Uh, you know, a magazine seeks to define what conservatism is to kind of help determine who, you know, who's in, who's out of it. Um, and to be a bit of a big tent, you have 
something like commentary, which is loyal to the neoconservative project in both domestic politics and you know with the neoconservative reassessment of social programs, uh, policing, um, and also to the uh, neoconservative stance in favor of interventionism in foreign affairs. You know, some, something like Jacobin really seeks to be a vehicle for the this movement, the Bernie left, which is, you know, which has really petered out. You know, compact. What we've seen in you know just the first few weeks of its existence is that the contributors, as uh, you know, disparate as they are, pro- probably the their greatest kind of current area of agreement is against the crest of enthusiasm that we've seen in response to Russia's wrongful invasion of Ukraine, where people are pushing for uh, increasingly aggressive uh, responses from uh, the NATO alliance and from the USA. I'm curious to tease out or hear more about what you foresee as potential tensions between the, uh, both within the magazine and sort of in the broader coalition that I think Compact is trying to exemplify between folks who come from a sort of traditionally more conservative background and a more traditional leftist background, because I'm someone who is sympathetic to a lot of the aspects of new sort of strains of thinking about economics on the right that emphasize community, family, you know, solidarity, uh, the integrity of the nation state over, you know, I think the sort of neoliberal consensus that has governed certainly right-wing politics in recent years. But I also take seriously the sort of traditional conservative critique uh, or concern that the expansion of government bureaucracy in particular often serves to crowd out and ultimately harm a lot of the local ties and sort of the local community uh, uh, obligations and sense of sort of patriotic obligation um, that conservatives are trying to preserve. And I think that's what would distinguish a sort of conservative pro-family, pro-community economics from a leftist one, which is much more bullish on just the expansion of the federal government. Do you think that's something that, you know, is that a conversation that folks at Compact are having? Do you think that's a conversation that's going to happen in your pages? And what do you make of that tension? Yeah, I think there's uh, certainly going to be attention on that and countless other issues. It probably won't be an issue that ever comes to the fore of public debate and leads to really, um, you know, strong disagreements just because, you know, kind of growth of government is not a, probably a first order concern for anyone outside of you know, the world of little magazines uh, and think tanks. I mean, yes, obviously it does um, crowd out, you know, family and local institutions. You know, the same is true of of capitalism. So you know, I think you know, another thing that the, you know, right in particular has to think about and it has been thinking about is just how corporations have changed and can and continue to change. It's not just, uh, you know, government that, you know, is a threat to liberty. It's also, you know, corporations, which, uh, you know, it's not just that they are uh, causing problems because they're relentlessly seeking the profit motive and you have the Gordon Gecko types. I mean, there's this increasing sort of HRization of public life, especially enforced uh, through corporations. And I think that the right-wing response um, has basically been to say, you know, corporations ought to stay out of politics. Corporations um, should be a place where you come and you work and you don't bring your politics into it. You've, you've seen quite a bit of that in some corporations. Um, uh, I think Coinbase maybe is one of them. A few tech corporations have taken this stance. And I wonder if that isn't a little, 
untrue to human nature and to economic history. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, someone like Max Weber, he pointed out that, you know, in Roman society, professions would be organized into corporations where, you know, if you were, if you were a member of a profession, you would feast together, you would have a shared burial ground. And so there was a political life tied to professional life. And, uh, he believed there was something natural about this and that the medieval, the, the medieval guild system, which you sometimes hear uh, conservatives of a certain type talk about, you know, that wasn't a sort of singular creation. It was actually a revival of a classical um, uh, form. And he expected that we would see something like this, uh, you know, come about in the wake of the economic changes wrought by industrialization and, uh, economic liberalism. And I think that he, he was right about that. And I think that our so-called work, our, our woke uh, corporations are examples of, of corporatism because they are inter, you know, corporatism is an inter, it's basically a coordination of uh, government, labor, and capital, usually uh, with some ideological aim. And I think that through uh, American, you know, civil rights law and the kind of HR apparatus. You know, we're we're really at that point of um, coordinating government, labor, and capital on specific ideological lines. So this is what a one scholar, Howard Wearda, um, you know, he he predicted that we would see creeping corporatism become increasingly prominent in the West. I think that's that's exactly what's happened, and I find it, I find it. Uh, quite a quite unwelcome development but i i would say that you know on this on this one issue just i'm using it as an example on this one issue i would i think that i would distinguish myself from most conservatives because i think that uh conservatives would generally say well corporate corporations just ought not to be involved in politics they ought not to be dictating um what flag you should uh wave or uh pronouns or these things but I'm I'm not sure that's altogether realistic. I mean, I certainly don't like the ideology on offer. I think generally, just as it's unnatural to expect that men shouldn't bring their religion and their beliefs into uh, politics, um, it's very unnatural to imagine that they wouldn't bring it into the workplace, which is such an important part of life. Right. And I think, you know, when you hear a lot of conservatives still today talk about things like corporate power in these sort of neutral apolitical terms, it does betray a sort of emaciated libertarian view of this dis distinction between the, the public and the private square that I do think uh, sort of fails to account for the, the nature of political life. But with that being said, um, Matt, I mean, one thing that you were talking about is corporatism. And I think something that you've heard from, or a critique that you might hear from the sort of more limited government, sort of small government uh, kinds of conservatives, is that a lot of corporate wokeness and specifically the HRocracy, the bureaucratization of, of corporate America today, is the direct result downstream in this case of the bureaucratization of government. I mean, this is something that you know uh, von Mises was writing about back in the 20s, where uh, the, the, the nature of bureaucratic capitalism, and then with the Civil Rights Act, what became sort of woke bureaucratic capitalism, is the, the result of large, overweening government bureaucracies. Um, and that, to me, it raises challenging questions about how to use state power to take on woke capital when, uh, when it's, at least if you, if you subscribe to this view, 
a lot of the, the aspects of woke capital that conservatives rightly object to are the result of state power in the first place. Uh, I don't know. What would you make of that criticism? Well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, I, I haven't read von Mises. I'm sure he makes a number of good points. You know, I mean, one issue we have is that just that there are so many people who are part of our workforce and who are have financial obligations, um, have received educations, are ready to take up a place in our society. And if we didn't have something like, um, you know, HR, it's not clear what they would do. So it might, you know, something like HR, it might be trying to address um, some of the issues created by the expansion of the labor force with the entrance of women into the workforce, you know, to an unprecedented, into the formal workforce uh, to an unprecedented degree. And I would just say that, you know, it's, it's a, you can look at um, something like, you know, a previous model of uh, corporatism, you know, in Salazar's Portugal, there's very little reason to think that it did any economic good for the country. Uh, it, it wasn't increasing efficiency or output, but what it probably did was uh, stabilize Salazar's regime by taking the whatever, you know, 2000 or so university graduates in Portugal every year and integrating them into the regime by giving them positions, making sure that, you know, the people making rope were doing so in a Catholic manner or whatever, which is faintly absurd, but it, it probably kept those people from becoming uh, revolutionary cadres. And I think that there's a bit of that going on with our current uh, creeping corporatism. I have a question about, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this. This is just an observation I've made. Um, and obviously there is kind of this involvement between um, the labor populism and populist right that uh, kind of you're trying to strike in, in this magazine. Um, something that I've also observed is mostly by uh, fusionists or by people who aren't quite as concerned with this potential threat, but um, the the kind of dissident liberals who ultimately are going to police the right on social issues, on cultural matters, um, whether it's, you know, things related to sexuality, uh, they'll ultimately maybe side with conservatives on matters like, you know, a campus uh, academic freedom and um, other campus related issues. Um, but when it comes to matters that are of serious concern for, uh, you know, religious conservatives, um, they will police the right on that on those subjects and, you know, call us the, the usual uh, kind of repertoire of, of names like theocrats and bigots, etc. Um, for, you know, holding views that were not uncommon in 2008. But um, what do you think ultimately that kind of relationship between, uh, in, well, at least in Compact, uh, how do you think Compact is kind of perhaps won't fall into that same, um, I don't want to call it a trap because I think a lot of conservatives willingly fall into it. Um, but how do you think Compact will differentiate itself from, uh, or perhaps not allow itself to veer onto that course of permitting people who perhaps share a number of, of the same uh, beliefs on important topics for sure. But um, when it comes down to matters that will impact, you know, our children um, in a quite consequential way, they kind of want to put a cudgel on conservatives. Yeah, there's um, 
anti-police sentiment on the left, and I think there's a quite a bit of anti-thought police sentiment on the right. And when we form when we formulated our uh, kind of initial statement of principles uh, for Compact, our uh, let's listen, let's post it on our site. We didn't feel any temptation to define this project as as one of uh, heterodoxy or um, you know just a kind of you know a, a diversity of viewpoints. We wanted instead to um, speak in terms of certain commonalities, however uh, limited or inevitably contested those would be, because. I think one thing you see among members of the, you know, so-called intellectual dark web is this uh, conceit, and I think it's really a false one, that you can beat uh, a false uh, ideology or false movement with, uh, you know, invocations of openness or disagreement or debate or procedure. All those things will end up being important in their place, but ultimately, uh, it takes something to beat something. You're going to have to uh, rally around um, something if you want to uh, counter something you think is bad, and I think that's that's just really a, a big limitation of the uh, intellectual dark web as it's constituted up to this point. It's not at all accidental that it you know is. Uh, populated by former new atheists who spent years railing against uh, basically Sarah Palin's and George W. Bush's as incipient theocrats, which is a really uh, incredible form of hysteria. And you know, these these people who deplore any form of you know what they call tribalism end up uh, backing themselves into a corner where you know any form of solidarity or a community is uh, really almost, you know, fascist in in kernel form, and you know they they share that with the uh, cold with the kind of more woke left, which they so furiously oppose. Um, but they they really aren't able to, and maybe they they simply aren't forthright about what their deeper commitments are. That's possible, and and maybe that maybe that's prudent if they aren't, but uh, I, they don't manage to distinguish themselves from the people they uh, often oppose so eloquently. So it's interesting because the, the critiques uh, that I'm hearing you make about free speech absolutism, the sort of skepticism of this idea of the marketplace of ideas where, you know, rationality characterizes debate, truth always wins out. That used to be the mainstream position, you know, at, at least the outset of the, the conservative movement. This is something I've written a little bit about before with regards to you know, figures like William F. Buckley, whose first book was subtitled The Superstitions of Academic Freedom, and Wilmore Kendall and Russell Kirk, and, you know, all these folks were highly skeptical of the sort of John Stuart Mill classical liberal view of how free speech and debate works. But Compact is not positioning itself, I think, as an explicitly conservative magazine. It's positioning itself as a departure from, from movement conservatism, both, I think, historically constituted and, you know, in its current state today. Why, if that's the sort of view that that you guys are taking, which I think personally is the correct one, would you not be attempting to sort of reclaim what I think were the sort of traditional roots of movement conservatism, and and why are you attempting to depart from it altogether? Yeah, you know, I didn't really think of compact. Um, 
I didn't think much of movement conservative conservatism as such when you know it's it's history when I was myself thinking about compact I guess I was thinking more about our our present challenges uh you you make a great point about you know conservative uh debate on this right now you know and, and the long you know rich history of conservative critiques of free speech absolutism yeah but things things have shifted pretty powerfully if you look at uh Institutions like AEI or uh, you know efforts to engage the university campus, free speech is really the banner um, under under which uh, conservatives march right now. And uh, I think in many ways that makes a lot a lot of sense. And obviously, there is a very necessary kind of liberty of speech and debate that's essential to intellectual life and to uh, any kind of good life more broadly, but. You know, as, as you say, conservatives um, do have a richer tradition. It would be good for them to reclaim one that recalls the uh, purposes of the university, you know, which, as you say, even Buckley did in his first and famous book. One other question for you just about the masthead uh, is the compact bills itself as a, as a journal of radical ideas. Curious what specifically you think makes compact radical and uh, what that radicalism constitutes. Yeah, it's a it's a striking term, isn't it? On our about page, we say that we're radical in a specific sense. Generally, that term is understood as meaning someone who's willing to go to extremes. But the kind of etym- etymologically correct sense of the word is uh, being willing to go to the root of things, to the uh, to the heart of the matter, so to speak. And we define this uh, somewhat. Centrically, is being willing to talk about class as well as uh, culture and uh, material realities as well as ideologies. And so, you know, what we are promise, promising our readers is that we're going to be radical in the sense of trying to get to get to get to the root of things. And we understand that as being willing to talk about class divides as well as cultural uh, differences and material interests as well as ideological commitments. So we are starting to run out of time, Matthew, but a question that um, I definitely want to ask um, is obviously, you know, you've kind of distinguished compact from the conservative movement broadly, um, but obviously, you know, just from your own background, first things, there are elements of, of conservatism in there. And I, I'm interested in kind of hearing, we, and we ask our, all of our listeners this question, or all of our guests, this question: um, What you would define conservatism as? Conservatism is a movement, a defined around political activism and intellectual entrepreneurship, that seeks to trim back the excesses of liberalism and to articulate a warm patriotism toward the American uh, nation and a love of its people. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Matthew. If people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Compactmag.com. Encourage you to read and subscribe. Great. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Marlo. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Bye.